Chapter Seven of Pilgrimage to El Medina and Mecca. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Seven of Personal Narrative of a Pilgrimage to El Medina and Mecca by Richard Francis Burton. Chapter Seven: Preparations to Quit Cairo. At length the slow month of blessings passed away. We rejoiced like Romans finishing their quaresima, when a salvo of artillery from the citadel announced the end of our Lenten woes. On the last day of Ramazan all gave alms to the poor, at the rate of a piastre and a half for each member of the household, slave, servant, and master. The next day, first of the three composing the Bairam or Id, footnote one, festival, it lasts the first three days of Shawal, the month immediately following Ramazan, and therefore among Muslims corresponds with our Pascal holidays, which succeed Lent. It is called the Lesser Festival, the Greater being in Sul Hijjah, the Pilgrimage Month. End of footnote. The Lesser Festival. We arose before dawn, performed our ablutions, and repaired to the mosque, to recite the peculiar prayer of the season, and to hear the sermon which bade us be merry and wise. After which we ate and drank heartily, then, with pipes and tobacco pouches in hand, we sauntered out to enjoy the contemplation of smiling faces and street scenery. The favourite resort on this occasion is the large cemetery beyond the Bab el Nazar. The favourite resort on this occasion is the large cemetery beyond the Bab el Nazar. Footnote two. In chapter five of this volume, I have mentioned the cemetery as Burkhardt's last resting place. End of footnote. That stern, old, massive gateway which opens upon the Suez Road. There we found a scene of jollity. Tents and ambulant coffee-houses were full of men equipped in their, Anglis, Sunday best, listening to singers and musicians, smoking, chatting, and looking at jugglers, buffoons, snake-charmers, dawaiishes, ape-leaders, and dancing-boys habited in women's attire, eating stalls and lollipop shops, booths full of playthings, and sheds for lemonade and syrups lined the roads, and disputed with swings and merry-go-rounds the regards of the little Muslims and Muslimas. The chief item of the crowd, fair Kyrenes, carried in their hands huge palm branches, intending to ornament there with the tombs of parents and friends. Yet, even on this solemn occasion, there is, they say, not a little flirtation and love-making. Parties of policemen are posted, with orders to interrupt all such irregularities, with a long cane. But their vigilance is notoriously unequal to the task. I could not help observing that frequent pairs, doubtless cousins or other relations, wandered to unusual distances among the sand-hills, and that sometimes the confusion of a distant bastinado struck the ear. These trifles did not, however, by any means interfere with the general joy. Every one wore something new. Most people were in the fresh suits of finery intended to last through the year, and so strong is personal vanity in the breasts of Orientals, men and women, young and old, that from Cairo to Calcutta it would be difficult to find a sad heart under a handsome coat. The men swaggered, the women minced their steps, rolled their eyes, and were eternally arranging and coquetting with their head-veils. The little boys strutting about foully abused any one of their number who might have a richer suit than his neighbours, and the little girls ogled every one in the ecstasy of conceit, and glanced contemptuously at other little girls their rivals. Weary of the country, the Haji and I wandered about the city, paying visits, which at this time are like New Year calls in continental Europe. I can describe the operation of calling in Egypt only as the discussion of pipes and coffee in one place, and of coffee and pipes in another. But on this occasion, 
Whenever we meet a friend, we throw ourselves upon each other's breast, placing right arms over left shoulders, and vice versa, squeezing like wrestlers with intermittent hugs, then laying cheek to cheek delicately, at the same time making the loud noise of many kisses in the air. Footnote 3. You are bound also to meet even your enemies in the most friendly way, for which mortification you afterwards hate them more cordially than before. End of footnote. The compliment of the season is, Culum antum bilcaer, every year may you be well. In fact, our many happy returns of the day. After this come abundant good wishes and kindly prophecies, and from a religious person, a blessing and a short prayer. To complete the resemblance between a Muslim and a Christian festival, we have dishes of the day, fish, shirak, the cross bun, and a peculiarly indigestible cake called in Egypt kak. Footnote 4. Persian. End of footnote. The plum pudding of al-Islam. This year's id was made gloomy, comparatively speaking, by the state of politics. Report of war with Russia, with France, with England, who was going to land three million men at Suez, and with infidel dom in general, rang through Egypt, and the city of Mars, footnote 5, with due deference to the many of a different opinion, I believe Cahira, corrupted through the Italian into Cairo, to mean not the victorious, but the city of Cahir, or Mars the planet. It was so called because, as Richardson has informed the world, it was founded in A.D. 968 by one Jauhar, a Dalmatian renegade before mentioned, when the warlike planet was in the ascendant. End of footnote. Became unusually martial. The government armories, arsenals, and manufactories were crowded with kidnapped workmen. Those who purposed a pilgrimage feared forcible detention. Wherever men gathered together, in the mosques, for instance, or the coffee-houses, the police closed the doors and made forcible capture of the able-bodied. This proceeding, almost as barbarous as our impressment law, filled the main streets with detachments of squatted-looking wretches marching to be made soldiers, with collars round their necks and irons on their wrists. The dismal impression of the scene was deepened by crowds of women who, habited in mourning, and scattering dust and mud over their rent garments, followed their sons, brothers, and husbands, with cries and shrieks. The death-wail is a peculiar way of cheering on the patriot departing pro patria mori, and the origin of the custom is characteristic of the people. The principal public amusements allowed to oriental women are those that come under the general name of Fantasia, birth feasts, marriage festivals, and funerals. And the early campaigns of Muhammad Ali's family in Syria and al-Hijaz having, in many cases, deprived the bereaved of their sex right keen for the dead, they have now determined not to waste the opportunity but to revel in the luxury of woe at the live man's wake. Footnote 6 There were no weeping women. No neighbours came in to sit down in the ashes, as they might have done had the soldier died at home. There was no Nubian dance for the dead, no Egyptian song of the women lauding the memory of the deceased, and beseeching him to tell why he had left them alone in the world to weep. Letter from Widden, March 25, 1854, describing a Turkish soldier's funeral. End of footnote. Another cloud hung over Cairo. Rumours of conspiracy were afloat. The Jews and Christians, here as ready to take alarm as the English in Italy, trembled at the fancied preparations for insurrection, massacre, and plunder. And even the Muslims whispered that some hundred desperadoes had resolved to fire the city, beginning with the banker's quarter, and to spoil the wealthy Egyptians. Of course, H. H. Abbas Pasha was absent at the time, and even had he been at Cairo, his presence would have been of little use. The ruler can do nothing towards restoring confidence to a panic-stricken oriental nation. At the end of the id, as a counter-irritant to political excitement, the police magistrates began to bully the people. 
there is a standing order in the chief cities of Egypt, that all who stir abroad after dark without a lantern shall pass the night in the station-house. Footnote 7. Captain Haynes wisely introduced the custom into Aden. I wonder that it is not made universal in the cities of India, where so much iniquity is perpetrated under the shadow of night. End of footnote. But at Cairo, in certain quarters, the Asbakia, footnote 8, the reason being that respectable Europeans and the passengers by the overland mail live and lodge in this quarter, end of footnote, for instance, a little laxity is usually allowed. Before I left the capital, the license was withdrawn, and the sudden strictness caused many ludicrous scenes. If by chance you, clad in oriental garb, had sent on your lantern to a friend's house by your servant, and had leisurely followed it five minutes after the hour of eight, you were sure to be met, stopped, collared, questioned, and captured by the patrol. You probably punched three or four of them, but found the dozen too strong for you. Held tightly by the sleeves, skirts, and collar of your wide outer garment, you were hurried away on a plane of about nine inches above the ground, your feet mostly treading the air. You were dragged along with a rapidity which scarcely permitted you to answer strings of questions concerning your name, nation, dwelling, faith, profession, and self in general, especially concerning the present state of your purse. If you lent an ear to the voice of the charmer that began by asking a crown to release you, and gradually came down to twopence halfpenny, you fell into a simple trap. The butt-end of a musket applied a posteriori, immediately after the transfer of property, convicted you of willful waste. But if, more sensibly, you pretended to have forgotten your purse, you were reviled and dragged with increased violence of shaking to the office of the Zabit, or police magistrate. You were spun through the large archway leading to the court, every fellow in uniform giving you, as you passed, a cuffer, cuff, on the back of the neck. Despite your rage, you were forced up the stairs to a long gallery full of people in a predicament like your own. Again, your name, nation, I suppose you to be masquerading, offence and other particulars were asked, and carefully noted in a folio by a ferocious-looking clerk. If you knew no better, you were summarily thrust into the hustle or condemned cell to pass the night with pickpockets or ruffians, pell-mell. But if an adept in such matters, you insisted upon being conducted before the pasha of the night, and, the clerk fearing to refuse, you were hurried to the great man's office, hoping for justice and dealing out ideal vengeance to your captors, the patrol. Here you found the dignitary sitting with pen, ink, and paper before him, and pipe and coffee-cup in hand, upon a wide dewan of dingy chintz, in a large dimly-lit room, with two guards by his side, and a semicircle of recent seizures vociferating before him. When your turn came, you were carefully collared and led up to the presence, as if even at that awful moment you were mutinously and murderously disposed. The pasha, looking at you with a vicious sneer, turned up his nose, ejaculated, a jummy, and prescribed the bastinado. You observed that the mere fact of being a Persian did not give mankind a right to capture, imprison, and punish you. You declared, moreover, that you were no Persian, but an Indian under British protection. The pasha, a man accustomed to obedience, then stared at you to frighten you, and you, we will suppose, stared at him, till, with an oath, he turned to the patrol and asked them your offence. They all simultaneously swore, by Allah, that you had been found without a lantern, dead drunk, beating respectable people, breaking into houses, invading and robbing harems. You openly told the pasha that they were eating abominations, upon which he directed one of his guards to smell your breath, the charge of drunkenness being tangible. The fellow, a comrade of your capturers, advanced his nose to your lips, as might be expected, cried, Kich! contorted his countenance, and answered by the beard of Effendina, Footnote 9. Our Lord, i.e. H. H. the Pasha. Kik is an interjection noting disapproval or disgust. Fi or ach. End of footnote. 
that he perceived a pestilent odour of distilled waters. This announcement probably elicited a grim grin from the pasha of the night, who loves Curaçao, and who is not indifferent to the charms of cognac. Then, by his favour, for you improved the occasion, you were allowed to spend the hours of darkness on a wooden bench in the adjacent long gallery, together with certain little parasites, for which polite language has no name. Footnote 9. Shortly after the Ramazan of 1853, the consul, I am told, obtained an order that British subjects should be sent directly from the police office at all hours of the night to the consulate. This was a most sensible measure. End of footnote. In the morning the janissary of your consulate was sent for, he came and claimed you. You were led off criminally, again you gave your name and address, and if your offence was merely sending on your lantern, you were dismissed with advice to be more careful in future, and assuredly your first step was towards the hammam. But if, on the other hand, you had declared yourself a European, you would either have been dismissed at once or sent to your consul, who was here judge, jury and jailer. Egyptian authority has of late years lost half its prestige. When Mr. Lane first settled at Cairo, all Europeans accused of aggression against Muslims were, he tells us, surrendered to the Turkish magistrates. Now the native powers have no jurisdiction over strangers, nor can the police enter their houses. If the West would raise the character of its Eastern co-religionists, it will be forced to push the system a point further, and to allow all bona fide Christian subjects to register their names at the different consulates whose protection they might prefer. This is what Russia has so unwarrantably and outrageously attempted. We confine ourselves to a lesser injustice which deprives Eastern states of their right as independent powers to arrest and to judge foreigners who for interest or convenience settle in their dominions, but we still shudder at the right of arrogating any such claim over the born lieges of Oriental powers. What, however, would be the result were Great Britain to authorise her sons resident at Paris or Florence to refuse attendance at a French or Italian court of justice, and to demand that the police should never force the doors of an English subject? I command this consideration to all who stickle for abstract rights, when the interest and progress of others are concerned, and who become somewhat latitudinarian and concrete in cases where their own welfare and aggrandizement are at stake. Besides patience, I made some pleasant acquaintances at Cairo. Anton Zananir, a young Syrian of considerable attainments as a linguist, paid me the compliment of permitting me to see the fair face of his harem. Mr. Hachidu Nuri, an Armenian gentleman, well known in Bombay, amongst other acts of kindness, introduced me to one of his compatriots, Khwaja Yusuf, whose advice was most useful to me. The Khwaja had wandered far and wide, picking up everywhere some scrap of strange knowledge, and his history was a romance. Expelled from Cairo for a youthful peccadillo, he started upon his travels, qualified himself for sanctity at Mecca and al-Medina, became a religious beggar at Baghdad, studied French at Paris, and finally settled down as a professor of languages. Footnote 11. Most eastern nations, owing to their fine ear for sounds, are quick at picking up languages, but the Armenian is here what the Russian is in the West, the facile princeps of conversational linguists. I have frequently heard them speak with the purest accent and admirable phraseology, besides their mother tongue, Turkish, Arabic, Persian, and Hindustani, nor do they evince less aptitude for acquiring the Occidental languages. End of footnote. Under an amnesty at Cairo. In his house I saw an Armenian marriage. The occasion was memorable. After the gloom and sameness of Muslim society, nothing could be more gladdening than the unveiled face of a pretty woman. Some of the guests were undeniably charming brunettes, with the blackest possible locks, and the brightest conceivable eyes. Only one pretty girl wore the national costume. 
Footnote 12. It has been too frequently treated of to leave room for a fresh description. Though pretty and picturesque, it is open to the reproach of Muslim dressing, namely that the indoor toilet admits of a display of bust, and is generally so scanty and flimsy that it is unfit to meet the eye of a stranger. This, probably the effect of secluding women, has now become a cause for concealing them. End of footnote. Yet they all smoked chibooks and sat upon the duans, and, as they entered the room, they kissed with a sweet simplicity the hands of the priest and of the other old gentlemen present. Amongst the number of my acquaintances was a Meccan boy, Muhammad al-Basuni, from whom I bought the pilgrim garb called al-Hiram, and the kafan or shroud, with which the Muslim usually starts upon such a journey as mine. He, being in his way homewards after a visit to Constantinople, was most anxious to accompany me in the character of a companion, but he had travelled too much to suit me. He had visited India, he had seen Englishmen, and he had lived with the Nawab Balu of Surat. Moreover, he showed signs of over-wisdom. He had been a regular visitor, till I cured one of his friends of an ophthalmia, after which he gave me his address at Mecca, and was seen no more. Haji Wali described him and his party to be Nazjara, extractors, and certainly he had not misjudged them, but the sequel will prove how much dimenschdekt and got linked, and as the boy Muhammad eventually did become my companion throughout the pilgrimage, I will place him before the reader as summarily as possible. He is a beardless youth of about eighteen, chocolate brown, with high features and a bold profile. His bony and decided Meccan cast of face is lit up by the peculiar Egyptian eye which seems to descend from generation to generation. Footnote 13. He was from the banks of the Nile, as his cognomen Albasuni proves, but his family, I was told, had been settled for three or four generations at Mecca. End of footnote. His figure is short and broad, with a tendency to be obese, the result of a strong stomach and the power of sleeping at discretion. He can read a little, write his name, and is uncommonly clever at a bargain. Mecca had taught him to speak excellent Arabic, to understand the literary dialect, to be eloquent in abuse, and to be profound at prayer and pilgrimage. Constantinople had given him a taste for anacreontic singing, and female society of the questionable kind, a love of strong waters, the hypocrite looked positively scandalised when I first suggested the subject, and an off-hand latitudinarian mode of dealing with serious subjects in general. I found him to be the youngest son of a widow, whose doting fondness had moulded his disposition. He was selfish and affectionate, as spoiled children usually are, volatile, easily offended, and as easily pacified, the Oriental, coveting other men's goods, and profuse of his own, the Arab, with a matchless intrepidity of countenance, the traveller, brazen-lunged, not more than half-brave, exceedingly astute, with an acute sense of honour, especially where his relations were concerned, the individual. I have seen him in a fit of fury because someone cursed his father, and he and I nearly parted because on one occasion I applied to him an epithet which, etymologically considered, might be exceedingly insulting to a high-minded brother, but which in popular parlance signifies nothing. This point d'honneur was the boy Muhammad's strong point. During the Ramazan I laid in my stores for the journey. These consisted of tea, coffee, loaf-sugar, rice, dates, biscuit, oil, vinegar, tobacco, lanterns and cooking pots, a small bell-shaped tent costing twelve shillings, and three water-skins for the desert. Footnote 14. Almost all the articles of food were so far useful that they served every one of the party at least as much as they did their owner. My friends drank my coffee, smoked my tobacco, and ate my rice. I bought better tea at Mecca than at Cairo, and found as good sugar there. It would have been wiser to lay in a small stock merely for the voyage to Yambu, in which case there might have been more economy. But I followed the advice of those interested in setting me wrong. 
Turks and Egyptians always go pilgrimaging with a large outfit, as notably the East Indian cadet of the present day, and your outfitter at Cairo, as well as Cornhill, is sure to supply you with a variety of superfluities. The tent was useful to me, so were the water skins, which I preferred to barrels as being more portable and less liable to leak. Good skins cost about a dollar each, they should be bought new, and always kept half full of water. End of footnote. The provisions were placed in a kafas, or hamper artistically made of palm sticks, and in a huge sahara, or wooden box, about three feet each way, covered with leather or skin, and provided with a small lid fitting into the top. Footnote 15. This shape secures the lid, which otherwise, on account of the weight of the box, would infallibly be torn off or burst open. Like the kafas, the sahara should be well padlocked, and if the owner be a saving man, he does not entrust his keys to a servant. I gave away my kafas at Yambu, because it had been crushed during the sea voyage, and I was obliged to leave the Sahara at El Medina, as my Badawi camel sheikh positively refused to carry it to Mecca, so that both these articles were well nigh useless to me. The kafas cost four shillings, and the Sahara about twelve. When these large boxes are really strong and good, they are worth about a pound sterling each. End of footnote. The former, together with my green box containing medicines and saddle-bags full of clothes, hung on one side of the camel, a counterpoise to the big Sahara on the other flank, the Badawan, like muleteers, always requiring a balance of weight. On the top of the lobe was placed transversely a shibria, or cot, on which Sheikh Nur squatted like a large crow. This worthy had strutted out into the streets armed with a pair of horse-pistols and a sword almost as long as himself. No sooner did the mischievous boys of Cairo, they as bad as the Gamma of Paris and London, catch sight of him than they began to scream with laughter at the sight of the Hindi, Indian, in arms, till, like a vagrant owl pursued by a flight of larks, he ran back into the caravanserai. Having spent all my ready money at Cairo, I was obliged to renew the supply. My native acquaintances advised me to take at least eighty pounds sterling, and considering the expense of outfit for desert travelling, the sum did not appear excessive. I should have found some difficulty in raising the money had it not been for the kindness of a friend at Alexandria, John Thurban, now I regret to say no more, and Mr. Sam Shepherd, then of Shepherd's Hotel, Cairo, presently a landed proprietor near Rugby, and now also gone. My Indians scrutinised the diminutive square of paper. Footnote 16. At my final interview with the Committee of the Royal Geographical Society, one member, Sir Woodbine Parrish, advised an order to be made out on the society's bankers. Another, Sir Roderick Murchison, kindly offered to give me one on his own, Coots & Co., but I, having more experience in oriental travelling, begged only to be furnished with a diminutive piece of paper, permitting me to draw upon the society. It was at once given by Dr. Shaw, the secretary, and it proved of much use eventually. It was purposely made to be as small as possible in order to fit into a talisman case. But the traveller must bear in mind that if his letters of credit be addressed to Orientals, the sheet of paper should always be large and grand-looking. These people have no faith in notes, commercial, epistolary, or diplomatic. End of footnote. The letter of credit. As a raven may sometimes be seen peering, with head askance, into the interior of a suspected marrowbone. Can this be a bona fide draft, they mentally inquired, and finally they offered, politely, to write to England for me, to draw the money, and to forward it in a sealed bag directed to Almedina. I need scarcely say that such a style of transmission would, in the case of precious metals, have left no possible chance of its safe arrival. When the difficulty was overcome, I bought fifty pounds worth of German dollars, Maria Theresa's, and invested the rest in English and Turkish sovereigns. Footnote 17. 
Before leaving Cairo, I bought English sovereigns for 112, and sold them in Arabia for 122 piastres. Abu Takas, Pataks, or Spanish pillar dollars, as they are called in Al-Hijaz, cost me 24 piastres, and in the holy city were worth 28. The Sinku, French five-franc piece, is bought for 22 piastres in Egypt, and sells at 24 in Arabia. The silver Majidi costs 20 at Cairo, and is worth 22 in the Red Sea, and finally I gained three piastres upon the gold Ghazi of 19. Such was the rate of exchange in 1853. It varies, however, perpetually, and in 1863 may be totally different. End of footnote. The gold I myself carried. Part of the silver I sewed up in Sheikh Nur's leather waistbelt, and part was packed in the boxes, for this reason. When Badawin begin plundering a respectable man, if they find a certain amount of ready money in his baggage, they do not search his person. If they find none, they proceed to a bodily inspection, and if his waistbelt be empty, they are rather disposed to rip open his stomach, in the belief that he must have some peculiar ingenious way of secreting valuables. Having passed through this trouble, I immediately fell into another. My hardly earned Alexandrian passport required a double visa, one at the police office, the other at the consul's. After returning to Egypt, I found it was the practice of travellers who required any civility from Dr. Warne, then the English official at Cairo, to enter the presence furnished with an order from the Foreign Office. I had neglected the precaution, and had ample reason to regret having done so. Failing at the British consulate, and unwilling to leave Cairo without being on regular, the Egyptians warned me that Suez was a place of obstacles to pilgrims. Footnote 18. The reason of this will be explained in a future chapter. End of footnote. I was obliged to look elsewhere for protection. My friend Hajiwali was the first consulted. After a long discussion, he offered to take me to his consul, the Persian, and to find out for what sum I could become a temporary subject of the Shah. We went to the sign of the Lion and the Sun, and we found the Dragoman. Footnote 19. The consular Dragoman is one of the greatest abuses I know. The tribe is, for the most part, Levantine and Christian, and its connections are extensive. The father will perhaps be interpreter to the English, the son to the French consulate. By this means, the most privy affairs will become known to every member of the department, except the head, and eventually to that best of spy trainers, the Turkish government. This explains how a subordinate, whose pay is £200 per annum, and who spends double that sum, can afford, after twelve or thirteen years' service, to purchase a house for £2,000 and to furnish it for as much more. Besides which, the condition, the ideas, and the very nature of these dragomans are completely oriental. The most timid and cringing of men, they dare not take the proper tone with the government to which, in case of the expulsion of a consul, they and their families would become subject. And their prepositions are entirely oriental. Hanna Masara, dragoman to the consul-general at Cairo, in my presence and before others, advocated the secret murder of a Muslim girl who had fled with a Greek, on the grounds that an adulteress must always be put to death, either publicly or under the rose. Yet this man is an old and tried servant of the state. Such evils might be in part mitigated by employing English youths, of whom an ample supply, if there were any demand, would soon be forthcoming. This measure has been advocated by the best authorities, but without success. Most probably, the reason of the neglect is the difficulty how to begin, or where to end, the Augean labour of consular reform. End of footnote. A subtle Syrian Christian, who, after a rigid inquiry into the state of my purse, my country was no consideration at all, Footnote 20. In a previous chapter I have alluded to the species of protection formerly common in the East. Europe, it is to be feared, is not yet immaculate in this respect, and men say that were a list of protected furnished by the different consulates at Cairo, it would be a curious document. 
as no one, Egyptian or foreigner, would, if he could possibly help it, be subject to the Egyptian government, large sums might be raised by the simple process of naturalizing strangers. At the Persian consulate, a hundred and ten dollars, the century for the consul and the decade for his dragoman, have been paid for protection. A stern fact this for those who advocate the self-government of the childish East. End of footnote. Introduce me to the great man. I have described this personage once already, and he merits not a second notice. The interview was truly ludicrous. He treated us with exceeding hauteur, motioned me to sit almost out of hearing, and after rolling his head in profound silence for nearly a quarter of an hour, vouchsafed the information that though my father might be a Shirazi and my mother an Afghan, he had not the honour of my acquaintance. His companion, a large old Persian with polyphemian eyebrows and a mulberry beard, put some gruff and discouraging questions. I quoted the verses, He is a man who benefits his fellow-men, not he who says why and wherefore and how much. Upon which an imperious wave of the arm directed me to return to the dragoman, who had the effrontery to ask me four pounds sterling for a Persian passport. I offered one. He derided my offer, and I went away perplexed. On my return to Cairo some months afterwards, he sent to say that had he known me as an Englishman, I should have had the document gratis, a civility for which he was duly thanked. At last my Sheikh Mohammed hit upon the plan. Thou art, said he, an Afghan. I will fetch hither the principal of the Afghan college at the Azhar, and he, if thou make it worth his while, this in a whisper, will be thy friend. The case was looking desperate. My preceptor was urged to lose no time. Presently Sheikh Mohammed returned in company with the principal, a little, thin, ragged-bearded, one-eyed, hair-lipped divine, dressed in very dirty clothes of nondescript cut. Born at Muscat of Afghan parents, and brought up at Mecca, he was a kind of cosmopolite, speaking five languages fluently, and full of reminiscences of toil and travel. He refused pipes and coffee, professing to be ascetically disposed, but he ate more than half my dinner, to reassure me, I presume, should I have been fearful that abstinence might injure his health. We then chatted in sundry tongues. I offered certain presents of books, which were rejected, such articles being valueless, and the Sheikh Abd al-Wahhab, having expressed his satisfaction at my account of myself, told me to call for him at the Azhar Mosque next morning. Accordingly, at 6 p.m., Sheikh Mohammed and Abdullah Khan, footnote 21, Khan is a title assumed in India and other countries by all Afghans and Pathans, their descendants, simple as well as gentle. End of footnote. The latter equipped in a gigantic sprigged muslin turban so as to pass for a student of theology, repaired to Al-Azhar. Passing through the open quadrangle, we entered the large hall which forms the body of the mosque. In the northern wall was a dwarf door, leading by breakneck stairs to a pigeonhole, the study of the learned Afghan sheikh. We found him ensconced behind piles of musty and greasy manuscripts, surrounded by scholars and scribes, with whom he was cheapening books. He had not much business to transact, but long before he was ready, the stifling atmosphere drove us out of the study, and we repaired to the hall. Presently the sheikh joined us, and we all rode on to the citadel, and waited in a mosque till the office hour struck. When the doors were opened, we went into the duan, and sat patiently till the sheikh found an opportunity of putting in a word. The officials were two in number, one an old invalid, very thin and sickly-looking, dressed in the Turco-European style, whose hand was being severely kissed by a troop of religious beggars, to whom he had done some small favours. The other was a stout young clerk, whose duty it was to engross, and not to have his hand kissed. My name and other essentials were required, and no objections were offered, for who holier than the Sheikh Abd al-Wahhab ibn Yunus al-Sulaimani? 
The clerk filled up a printed paper in the Turkish language, apparently borrowed from the European method for spoiling the traveller, certified me, upon the sheikh's security, to be one Abdullah, the son of Yusuf, Joseph, originally from Kabul, described my person, and in exchange for five piastres, handed me the document. I received it with joy. With bows and benedictions, and many wishes that Allah might make it the official's fate to become pilgrims, we left the office and returned towards Al-Azhar. When we had nearly reached the mosque, Sheikh Mohammed lagged behind and made the sign. I drew near the Afghan and asked for his hand. He took the hint, and muttering, It is no matter, it is not necessary, by Allah it is not required, extended his fingers and brought the musculus guineorum to bear upon three dollars. Poor man, I believe it was his necessity that consented to be paid for the doing a common act of Muslim charity. He had a wife and children, and the calling of an alum, footnote 22, a theologian, a learned man, end footnote, is no longer worth much in Egypt. My departure from Cairo was hastened by an accident. I lost my reputation by a little misfortune that happened in this wise. At Haji Wali's room in the caravanserai I met a Yuzbashi, or captain of Albanian irregulars, who was in Egypt, on leave from Al-Hijaz. He was a tall, bony, and broad-shouldered mountaineer, about forty years old, with a large bomb brow, the fierce eyes, thin lips, lean jaws, and peaky chin of his race. His mustachios were enormously long and tapering, and the rest of his face, like his head, was close-shaven. His fustan, footnote 23, the stiff, white, plaited quilt, worn by Albanians, end of footnote, was none of the cleanest, nor was the red cap, which he wore rakishly pulled over his frowning forehead, quite free from stains. Not permitted to carry the favourite pistols, he contented himself with sticking his right hand in the empty belt, and stalking about the house with a most military mien. Yet he was as little of a bully as carpet knight, that same Aliaga. His body showed many a grisly scar, and one of his shin-bones had been broken by a Turkish bullet, when he was playing tricks on the Albanian hills an accident inducing a limp which he attempted to conceal by a heavy swagger. When he spoke, his voice was affectedly gruff, he had a sad knack of sneering, and I never saw him thoroughly sober. Our acquaintance began with a kind of storm which blew over and left fine weather. I was showing Haji Wali my pistols with Damascene barrels when Aliaga entered the room. He sat down before me with a grin which said intelligibly enough, What business have you with weapons? Snatched the arm out of my hand and began to inspect it as a connoisseur. Not admiring this procedure, I wrenched it away from him, and addressing myself to Haji Wali, proceeded quietly with my dissertation. The captain of irregulars and I then looked at each other. He cocked his cap on one side, in token of excited pugnacity. I twirled my mustachios to display a kindred emotion. Had he been armed, and in Al-Hijaz, we should have fought it out at once, for the Arnauts are terribly collapistola, as the Italians say, meaning that upon the least provocation they pull out a horse-pistol and fire it in the face of friend or foe. Of course, the only way under these circumstances is to anticipate them, but even this desperate prevention seldom saves a stranger, as whenever there is danger these men go about in pairs. I never met with a more reckless brood. Upon the line of march Albanian troops are not allowed ammunition, for otherwise there would be half a dozen duels a day. When they quarrel over their cups, it is the fashion for each man to draw a pistol and to place it against his opponent's breast. The weapons being kept accurately clean, seldom miss fire, and if one combatant draw trigger before the other, he would immediately be shot down by the bystanders. Footnote 24. Those curious about the manners of these desperados may consult the pages of Giovanni Finati, Murray, London, 1830, and I will be answerable that he exaggerates nothing. End of footnote. 
In Egypt, these men, who are used as irregulars, and are often quartered upon the hapless villages when unable or unwilling to pay taxes, were the terror of the population. On many occasions they have quarrelled with foreigners and insulted European women. In Al-Hijaz their recklessness awes even the Bedouin. The townspeople say of them that, tripe-sellers and bath-servants at Stambul, they become pharaohs, tyrants, ruffians, in Arabia. At Jeddah, the Arnauts have amused themselves with firing the English consul, Mr. Ogilvy, when he walked upon his terrace. And this man-shooting appears a favourite sport with them. At Cairo, numerous stories illustrate the song-fire with which they used to knock over the camel-drivers if any one dared ride past their barracks. The Albanians vaunt their skill in using weapons, and their pretensions impose upon Arabs as well as Egyptians, yet I have never found them wonderful with any arm, the pistol alone excepted. And our officers, who have visited their native hills, speak of them as tolerable but by no means first-rate rifle shots. The captain of irregulars being unhappily debarred the pleasure of shooting me, after looking fierce for a time, rose and walked majestically out of the room. A day or two afterwards he called upon me civilly enough, sat down, drank a cup of coffee, smoked a pipe, and began to converse. But as he knew about a hundred Arabic words, and I as many Turkish, our conversation was carried on under difficulties. Presently he asked me in a whisper for Araki, footnote 25, vulgarly Raki, the cognac of Egypt and Turkey. Generically the word means any spirit, specifically it is applied to that extracted from dates or dried grapes. The latter is more expensive than the former, and costs from five to seven piastres the bottle. It whitens the water like eau de cologne, and being considered a stomachic, is patronised by Europeans as much as by Asiatics. In the Azbakia gardens at Cairo, the traveller is astonished by perpetual shouts for Siropo de Goma, as if all the western population was afflicted with sore throat. The reason is that spiritous liquors in a Muslim land must not be sold in places of public resort, so the infidel asks for a syrup of gum, and obtains a dram of araki. The favourite way of drinking it is to swallow it neat and to wash it down with a mouthful of cold water. Taken in this way, it acts like the petit verre d'absinthe. Egyptian women delight in it, and eastern topers of all classes and sexes prefer it to brandy and cognac, the smell of which, being strange, is offensive to them. End footnote. I replied that there was none in the house, which induced a sneer and an ejaculation sounding like Khmar, ass, the slang synonym among fast Muslims for water-drinker. After rising to depart, he seized me waggishly with an eye to a trial of strength. Thinking that an Indian doctor and a temperance man would not be very dangerous, he exposed himself to what is professionally termed a cross-buttock, and had his nut come in contact with the stone floor instead of my bed, he might not have drunk for many a day. The fall had a good effect upon his temper. He jumped up, patted my head, called for another pipe, and sat down to show me his wounds and to boast of his exploits. I could not help remarking a ring of English gold with a bezel of bloodstone sitting strangely upon his coarse, sun-stained hand. He declared that it had been snatched by him from a consul at Jeddah, and he volubly related, in a mixture of Albanian, Turkish, and Arabic, the history of his acquisition. He begged me to supply him with a little poison that would not lie, for the purpose of quieting a troublesome enemy, and he carefully stowed away in his pouch five grains of calomel which I gave him for that laudable purpose. Before taking leave, he pressed me strongly to go and drink with him. I refused to do so during the day, but, wishing to see how these men sacrificed to Bacchus, promised compliance that night. About nine o'clock, when the caravanserai was quiet, I took a pipe and a tobacco pouch, footnote 26. When Egyptians of the middle classes call upon one another, the visitor always carries with him his tobacco pouch, which he hands to the servant who fills his pipe, end of footnote. I stuck my dagger in my belt, and slipped into Aliaga's room. 
He was sitting on a bed spread upon the ground. In front of him stood four wax candles, all Orientals hate drinking in any but a bright light, and a tray containing a basin of stuff like soup migra, a dish of cold stewed meat, and two bowls of salata. Footnote 27. The salata is made as follows. Take a cucumber, pare, slice and place it in a plate, sprinkling it over with salt. After a few minutes, season it abundantly with pepper, and put it in a bowl containing some peppercorns and about a pint of curds. When the dish is properly mixed, a live coal is placed upon the top of the compound to make it bind, as the Arabs say. It is considered a cooling dish, and is esteemed by the abstemious as well as by the toper. Sliced Cucumber and Curds the materials peeped out of an iron pot filled with water. One was a long, thin, white glass flask of araki, the other a bottle of some strong perfume. Both were wrapped up in wet rags, the usual refrigerator. Aliaga welcomed me politely, and seeing me admire the preparations, bade me beware how I suspected an Albanian of not knowing how to drink. He made me sit by him on the bed, threw his dagger to a handy distance, signalled me to do the same, and prepared to begin the bout. Taking up a little tumbler, in shape like those from which French postillions used to drink la goutte, he inspected it narrowly, wiped out the interior with his forefinger, filled it to the brim, and offered it to his guest. Footnote 28. These Albanians are at most half Asiatic as regards manner. In the East generally, the host drinks of the cup, and dips his hand into the dish before his guest, for the same reason that the master of the house precedes his visitor over the threshold. Both actions denote that no treachery is intended, and to reverse them, as amongst us, would be a gross breach of custom, likely to excite the liveliest suspicions. End of footnote. With a bow. I received it with a low salam, followed its contents at once, turned it upside down in proof of fair play, replaced it upon the floor with a jaunty movement of the arm, somewhat like a pugilist delivering a rounder, bowed again, and requested him to help himself. The same ceremony followed on his part. Immediately after each glass, and rapidly the cup went about, we swallowed a draught of water and ate a spoonful of the meat or the salata in order to cool our palates. Then we reapplied ourselves to our pipes, emitting huge puffs, a sign of being fast men, and looked facetiously at each other, drinking being considered by Muslims a funny and pleasant sort of sin. The Albanian captain was at least half seas over when we began the bout, yet he continued to fill and to drain without showing the least progress towards ebriety. I in vain for a time expected the badmasti, and the gross facetiae which generally accompany a southern and eastern tipsiness. Aliaga, indeed, occasionally took up the bottle of perfume, filled the palm of his right hand, and dashed it in my face. I followed his example, but our pleasantries went no further. Presently my companion started a grand project, namely, that I should entice the respectable Haji Wali into the room where we might force him to drink. The idea was facetious. It was making a Bow Street magistrate poke at a casino. I started up to fetch the haji, and when I returned with him, Aliaga was found in a new stage of freshness. He had stuck a green-leaved twig upright in the floor, and had so turned over a gugglet of water that its contents trickled slowly and in a tiny stream under the verdure, while he was sitting before it mentally gazing, with an outward show of grim, quiotic tenderness, upon the shady trees and the cool rugs of his fatherland. Possibly he had peopled the place with young barbarians at play, for verily I thought that a tear, which had no business there, was glistening in his stony eye. The appearance of Haji Wali suddenly changed the scene. Aliaga jumped up, seized the visitor by the shoulder, compelled him to sit down, and, ecstasied by the old man's horror at the scene, filled a tumbler, and with the usual grotesque grimaces insisted on its being drunk off. Haji Wali stoutly refused. Then Aliaga put it to his own lips and drained it with a hurt feeling and reproachful aspect. We made our unconvivial friend smoke a few puffs, and then we returned to the charge. 
In vain the Haji protested that throughout life he had avoided the deadly sin. In vain he promised to drink with us tomorrow. In vain he quoted the Koran and alternately coaxed and threatened us with the police. We were inexorable. At last the Haji started upon his feet and rushed away, regardless of anything but escape, leaving his tarbush, his slippers and his pipe in the hands of the enemy. The host did not dare to pursue his recreant guest beyond the door, but returning he carefully sprinkled the polluting liquid on the cap, pipe and shoes, and called the Haji an ass in every tongue he knew. Then we applied ourselves to supper and dispatched the soup, the stew and the salata. A few tumblers and pipes were exhausted to obviate indigestion, when Aliaga arose majestically and said that he required a troop of dancing girls to gladden his eyes with a ballet. I represented that such persons are no longer admitted into caravanserais. Footnote 29. Formerly these places, like the coffee-houses, were crowded with bad characters. Of late years the latter have been refused admittance, but it would be as easy to bar the door to gnats and flies. They appear as foot-pages, as washerwomen, as beggars. In fact, they evade the law with ingenuity and impunity. End of footnote. He inquired, with calm ferocity, Who hath forbidden it? I replied, The Pasha, upon which Aliaga quietly removed his cap, brushed it with his dexter forearm, fitted it on his forehead, raking forwards, twisted his moustachios to the sharp point of a single hair, shouldered his pipe, and moved towards the door, vowing that he would make the Pasha himself come and dance before us. I foresaw a brawl, and felt thankful that my boon companion had forgotten his dagger. Prudence whispered me to return to my room, to bolt the door, and to go to bed, but conscience suggested that it would be unfair to abandon the Albanian in his present helpless state. I followed him into the outer gallery, pulling him and begging him, as a despairing wife might urge a drunken husband, to return home. And he, like the British husband, being greatly irritated by the unjovial advice, instantly belaboured with his pipe-stick. Footnote 30. Ismail Pasha was murdered by Malak Nimr, chief of Shendi, for striking him with a chibuk across the face. Travellers would do well to remember that in these lands the pipe-stick and the slipper disgrace a man, whereas a whip or a rod would not do so. The probable reason of this is that the two articles of domestic use are applied slightingly, not seriously, to the purposes of punishment. End of footnote. The first person he met in the gallery, and sent him flying down the stairs with fearful shouts of, O Egyptians! O ye accursed! O Guinness of Pharaoh! O race of dogs! O Egyptians! He then burst open a door with his shoulder, and, and reeled into a room where two aged dames were placidly reposing by the side of their spouses, who were basket-makers. They immediately awoke, seeing a stranger, and, hearing his foul words, they retorted with a hot volley of vituperation. Put to flight by the old woman's tongues, Aliaga, in spite of all my endeavours, reeled down the stairs and fell upon the sleeping form of the night-porter, whose blood he vowed to drink, the oriental form of threatening spifflication. Happily for the assaulted, the Aga's servant, a sturdy Albanian lad, was lying on a mat in the doorway close by. Roused by the tumult, he jumped up and found the captain in a state of fury. Apparently the man was used to the master's mood. Without delay he told us all to assist, and we lending a helping hand, half dragged and half carried the Albanian to his room. Yet even in this ignoble plight he shouted with all the force of his lungs the old war cry, O Egyptians! O race of dogs! I have dishonoured all Sicandria, all Kahira, all Suez! Footnote 31. Anglis, Alexandria, Cairo and Suez, an extensive field of operations. End of footnote. And in this vaunting frame of mind he was put to bed. No Welsh undergraduate at Oxford, under similar circumstances, ever gave more trouble. "'You had better start on your pilgrimage at once,' said Haji Wali, meeting me the next morning with a goganard smile. 
He was right. Throughout the caravanserai nothing was talked of for nearly a week but the wickedness of the captain of Albanian irregulars and the hypocrisy of the staid Indian doctor. Thus it was, gentle reader, that I lost my reputation of being a serious person at Cairo, and all I have to show for it is the personal experience of an Albanian drinking bout. I wasted but little time in taking leave of my friends, telling them by way of precaution that my destination was Mecca via Jeddah, and firmly determining, if possible, to make Al Medina via Yambu. Conceal, says the Arab's proverb, thy tenants, thy treasure, and thy travelling. End of chapter 7